0: Welcome to Public Theology, a special series of our church podcast, Questions and Answers About the Bible in Theology. In these special episodes, we consider how the message of the Bible influences the way that we understand and respond to news, stories, ideas, and events. Well, this is our first special edition of the podcast that we're calling Public Theology. And so I just wanted to talk about the way that I approach the news and social media, and then really briefly address a couple of articles and events. I think that in some of these episodes, I'll deep dive into an article, and we'll break it down, talk about it, evaluate it, and sometimes I'll invite others onto the podcast, just as we have for the other topics where we've had other pastors or individuals, or sometimes Josh will join me, and we'll have more of an interview-style discussion, or, or sometimes we'll just talk about the article together. So I think on some of these, we'll deep dive articles. I think other times we'll deep dive a topic when there's a string of articles in the news that would be worth considering all pointing toward uh, the same event or a, a significant worldview issue. And then sometimes I'm just going to quickly hit different articles or events or even books that I've been reading. So let me start by talking about the way that I read the news and the way that I think about the news. I think that the news and news media have a lot to gain from having the kind of headlines that grab our attention and the kind of stories that are really entertaining or exciting or elicit a kind of gut reaction to where we're getting very emotionally involved in the news. And so I actually generally stay away from... Any televised news and even any radio broadcast news, for the most part, I just think they're making a lot of money because they are on the television and for them to always be putting something sensational forward is is going to grab onto me and grab onto my emotions and it's going to hook me to it when the reality is that there's probably more smoke than fire as they say there to where these individuals profit off of you and me when they can hook us to the screen or to the radio or something like that. So most of my news intake comes from articles and and from actual newspapers. So for a while I was subscribing to newspapers. That got a little bit expensive. So now instead of getting the paper copies, I just get the digital editions. And um, so there are a few sources that I read regularly. Um, Locally, I read the Star Trib, the Minneapolis Star Tribune, so that way I'm aware of what's going on in the metro area and in the larger state. And I look about this at this paper probably two or three times a week, and I kind of just scan the headlines, see see what's going on. But rarely do they have any long-form journalism. The Star Trib, I look at more just to stay up-to-date on current events in our area, and then any larger news events get put in there as well. On a broader level, I look at the New York Times about once a week. I subscribe to the online edition. And so about every Monday, I'll sit down for 15 or 20 minutes and skim the headlines. If there's anything that I think would be worth reading, I'll click on it and and spend the time reading it. But more significantly, I spend time reading articles in The Atlantic. These are usually more long-form articles. So that means that someone's taken the time to sit down and do more research. And usually these are not the cutting-edge articles in terms of coming out 10 minutes after an event has happened. Usually they come out down the road, and there are usually some interesting and helpful articles there. And the same goes for Christianity Today. So that's my Christian news source. Uh, I occasionally will look at a site like the Gospel Coalition or something like that because they're they're adding to the the news and, and communicating what's going on in the Christian world. But Christianity Today and then the Atlantic are the main sources for my news intake. Now, along these lines, for a while, the first place that I would see news would be in my social media feeds. So I've had Facebook and Twitter and Instagram in the past. I couldn't figure out Instagram. I had it for just a couple of weeks, and then I got rid of it because it didn't make any sense to me. About I I got Facebook and Twitter when I was in High school and then college, I, I think I got Twitter and I used them for some time and realized that they were just taking up too much of my time. So I deleted them and deleted my accounts in 2017 I, and actually used a flip phone at the time as I was working on my time management and my study habits. And recently in March, I got an iPhone and a, I restarted Facebook and Twitter However, I think that the way that the algorithms work on social media is that only kind of a a select amount of news stories actually show up. And I really, as far as that goes never see a wide variety of friends posts on a news feed. It's usually the same people. So I found that there are in Google Chrome, the website browser that I use, there are some extensions that can disable the news feeds on both uh, Facebook and Twitter. And so I've disabled those and I don't have Facebook or Twitter on my phone. So I can log into them on the computer and I can see things there, but I have to actually go and look at someone's profile if I want to see what's going on there. And what this does is it cuts out a lot of the advertisements and all of the random articles that people are sharing unless I see them on an individual's Facebook wall or Twitter profile when I go to their account. This has been really helpful in weeding out a lot of extraneous news stories that are written by really low-level journalism or something really quick or just something that's meant to entertain rather than to inform. And so I usually don't turn to social media for my news intake. Now, I am part of a couple of groups on Facebook. There's a nerdy language majors group I'm in. There's a Bible theology, biblical theology group I'm in, a pastor's group I'm in. And so sometimes I'll go to these groups pages and there will be articles that have been shared. And and that's a way for me to be exposed to news stories from the sources that I don't read. And usually those are pretty interesting. My thought on the news is that if, if it seems really exciting or sensational, it's probably meant just to get clicks and to make the company money more than it is to communicate carefully and thoughtfully about the events and ideas and, and the news that's going on all around the world. And I've heard people say that the best news is boring news. So when I re- read a news article... I, I want the news articles to be like a dictionary article or an article in an encyclopedia to where it might be engaging, it might be interesting, but it's not sensational. It's not trying to uh, grab more clicks, you know, it's, it's actual, actually good, well-written, well-researched news. This again is one of the reasons why I don't get my news from the television or the radio on those in in that format. There's sort of just uh we have to fill this time and we have to get as many views as possible. And so not only is there a repetition of things, but also they're trying to report things as they happen and usually There's misinformation that spread during that. There's gut reactions that are kind of elicited from these on-the-spot, moment-by-moment, day-after-day news. Now, I don't know if it's always been this way. I'm not old enough to know how the news has functioned over the centuries. But I remember even as a kid, the the news would come on, you know, for an hour or two. We'd we'd watch a program on the television for an hour and then it would be over. And so those sort of news programs maybe are a little bit better. Maybe those are still there. Um, But I think that long form journalism is probably the most helpful form of journalism to be exposed to on a regular basis. I do think it's important to know what's going on in the world and in our area. And so I don't want to discourage reading the news, listening to the news, being engaged with the events and ideas that are flowing all around us. But I do think that the means that it's communicated with in the format of the news is meant very often to entertain and to grab views and clicks rather than to genuinely inform or to test ideas or to explore ideas. Very little research, I think, goes into that. And so it becomes something of a commercial endeavor rather than an educational endeavor. And so I found that the Atlantic, the Wall Street Journal, um, the New York Times, Christianity Today, these, these formats certainly fall prey to these errors as well, but I think they produce a lot more long form journalism. That's that's much more helpful and and thoughtful. I just want to very briefly talk about one article and then talk about one event and, and to try to do what we want to do in this public theology podcast, to think about them from a biblical perspective, seeking to understand how the message of the Bible would influence the way that we relate to these stories and events, and how we should respond to them. So the first article is from the New York Times, written by Nellie Bowles, titled God is Dead, So is the Office, These People Want to Save Both. This article was published in the online edition of the New York Times on August 28, 2020. Now, in the sermon that I preached this morning at church, I referenced the fact that the divinity consultants mentioned in this article are seeking to be something of a a pastoral, a, a clergyman for the corporate America. And they are seeking to establish different routines and rituals for individuals to help provide meaning and structures. And really, they're seeking to also cultivate... Community in the workplace. Now, they titled the article God is Dead, which is an allusion to Frederick Nietzsche's well known quote God is dead, he remains dead, we have killed him. And, and so they're just trying to point out that churches no longer bring anything uniquely meaningful because we live in a society where God is not thought of as real or meaningful. And then the next portion of the titles is, so is the office. The office is dead too. And they're just simply pointing out that many individuals find their sense of community and meaning and ritual, not in the church, but in the office, However, in this COVID-19 world, there's the loss of those rituals and those meaning structures in that community as many office workers are now working from home. And in that transition, they lost a lot of their community and a lot of their meaning structures. So in a sense, they're, they're painting the picture of corporate America as something of a replacement religion and a replacement church for the Christian churches that have gone before. At the in the last section of that title, they say these people want to save both, and these people refer to the divinity consultants I already mentioned. And and what these divinity consultants have done is found a space in the market to sell religious ideas. And two, I think maybe in the best to, to give them the benefit of the doubt, they actually want to help others. They they realize that humans are spiritual beings as well as physical creatures, and they can't be treated simply as objects. There's a desire for community, and they want to help corporate institutions figure out how to provide a level of community and spiritual flourishing in the workplace, especially as those existing structures have now been removed as people are working from home and are prone to isolation, loneliness, depression, and all the rest. Now, we have to ask, why is it that there is even a a, a place in the market for a divinity consultant in what we should really refer to as the Church of Corporate America? And as I argued in the sermon this morning, I think that as we read the history of the Church in America and in other secularizing countries— Many churches got off gospel mission and started to focus either on good things like hospitality ministries or mercy ministries or or charities or something like that, or negatively, they replaced the gospel of Christ with the gospel of culture and in instead of trying to cultivate biblical wisdom and obedience and gospel ministry there's a cultivation of whatever the culture has decided is the issue that we should think about and in so doing and getting off track being derailed from gospel ministry these churches provided a community certainly they provided help certainly but not in a way that was distinct or different than any other charity or nonprofit, and eventually in a way that wasn't even different than the workplace. So when churches adopt as their mission some sort of social wokeness or something like that, they're standing in line with every business and every charity along the way. Now, I'm not suggesting that churches shouldn't be concerned for social issues. However, If a church makes social issues their primary focus, then they are really now trying to just tag along with what corporate America is doing as well. And these divinity consultants recognize this. They pointed out that they saw companies jumping on the bandwagon of social posturing and and social statements. And, And even the branding of these companies now focuses less on their product and more on their social and political endorsements. And so these divinity consultants are seeing a way for corporations to be the base for spiritual ministry, in a sense, because the church, through the history of secularization, has abandoned the gospel and made fostering community and and those sort of things all that the church is. Well, we, of course, want to say that the mission of the church is greater than just fostering community or hosting a charity or something like that. But we, we have to also point out, as the author of this article did, that the community that's cultivated in the workplace isn't really genuine community. And in this way, churches cannot be replaced Churches can't be replaced because they champion the gospel, but even churches who abandon the gospel still offer something in terms of community that a workplace can't offer. Because a workplace is still a workplace, employees are still employees, and they can still get fired by their employer. And so that sense of genuine community dissipates rather quickly when your office buddy or your cubby buddy, your, your cubicle worker, is now fired, that, that community didn't last very long. Now, churches who have abandoned the gospel and offer some form of community aren't much better because that community can only be rooted in whatever the common idea is in the moment or whatever the common charity act is in that moment. Churches that maintain the gospel of Jesus Christ find deep unity that transcends time and culture and place as they shape their identity by the gospel and as they find their identity in Jesus Christ. So while it might be tempting to see our workplaces or schools or anywhere else as the foundational structure for meaningful community, we have to recognize that unless that community is rooted in something deeper than we are, it won't last forever. And the only thing that can last forever, as we saw in Titus this morning, is the hope in eternal life, which God promised before time eternal. And so we, as a church, must seek to shape community not based on common interest or hobby or employment, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is, however, an additional reality that we should point out here. These divinity consultants are onto something when they are trying to write rituals for these employees. They're creating rituals for when they get on a Zoom call, when they get off a Zoom call, when they make a sale, when they lose a sale, when things are going well, and when things are going poorly. And here they are tying into who we are as humans. God made us as a ritualed people. We see this going all the way back to creation in the order of the universe, in the rising of the sun, in in the changing of the tides, in the cycles of the moon, and we see ritual is written into the cosmos, into the world, into the universe, and we are created in that universe, and we live our lives by various rituals. Sometimes we don't think about them this way, but the, the routines that we give for ourselves, that we shape, eventually start to shape us. And whether that's a posture that we take, whether it's kneeling or bowing our heads and closing our eyes when we pray, or whether it's that rigid morning routine that we follow, these rituals do shape us and they provide a level of meaning for us. Now, we have to always be asking, Who is writing the rituals that I am living by? Drew Johnson, in his really helpful book called Human Rights, The Power of Rituals, Habits, and Sacraments, points out that most Christians are either completely unaware that they're living ritualed lives or that they simply have never considered who is writing the rituals that they're being shaped by. As Christians, we have to think about the rituals we live our lives by, who is shaping them, and what then those rituals are doing to us. The divinity consultants here are writing rituals for employees, and we might look at that as somewhat helpful. However, their process of writing rituals has really come from looking at all of the major world religions and boiling them down to shared commonality. Commonalities, and then they've tried to import those commonalities into the workplace. And they hope by doing this that they will not only cultivate community and provide meaning, but also encourage employees to be concerned about the morality of their workplace. They want employees to be able to point out practices that they see are lucrative, but are instead also immoral. And so this is good as far as it goes. We see a level of pastoral concern for people in these settings and furthermore, a concern for morality. Now, I would rather have individuals who are concerned about how to to shape the workplace into a more moral place than a less moral place. That's good as far as it goes. But this brings us back to the title of the article. The article says... God is dead, so is the office. These people want to save both. But are these divinity consultants really trying to engage God truly? Are they trying to lead others to engage God? I don't think so. As far as I can tell, these divinity consultants simply are importing a sense of vague spirituality into the workplace, and that is not a return to God. We're reminded in Romans 1 that humans, in their sinfulness, are always attempting to suppress the truth about God and to exchange it for a lie. And while these divinity consultants might have good intentions, what they're really doing is exchanging the truth about God for a lie. Because spiritual life does it not come from importing stripped-down rituals into the workplace, but from the author of life himself, from God through Jesus Christ. These divinity consultants are spurred on by the restlessness that have that has afflicted many office workers as they've transitioned to working from home. The death of the office killed the routines and meaning structures that were in place prior to COVID-19, but Just importing these semi-religious meaning structures is not a return to God, nor will it bring the kind of rest that can be found in God alone. We remember the words of that ancient theologian Augustine when he wrote that our hearts will remain restless until we find our rest in God. While the routines and rituals provided by the divinity consultants might bring some level of stabilization, they don't bring the Sabbath rest that can be found in God alone. Next, I just want to consider an event that has surfaced over the last several months and keeps appearing in the news, both in Christian news and in the larger public news, and it relates to Liberty University and Jerry and Becky Falwell. I don't think that it is worth repeating the accusations that have been made and the sinful activities that have been alleged here, but suffice it to say that Jerry Falwell and his wife, Becky Falwell, have been implicated in multiple and various sexual immorality. And we don't need to go into detail here, but we need to recognize first that this is wrong. And while the unbelieving world may leverage the attack that Christians must all be hypocrites because of these alleged accusations against Jerry and Becky Falwell that may well prove to be true, we have to first say that we as Christians do not condone sexual immorality. There may be Christians who are entrapped in this sin, and they may be entrapped in this sin for a long time, and furthermore, instead of repenting and turning from it, they may try to cover it up, but we must be clear that this is wrong. It is sinful. We as Christians must not endorse it or excuse it away. We must face up to it and call it sin as it is. This is what Christians should say and they should, where they have responsibility to Jerry and Becky Falwell, encourage them and call them to repentance for this sin. Now, the board at Liberty University was probably unaware of these accusations until they hit the public news, and they probably just didn't know that this was happening. There were other things going on that might have and probably should have led the board to remove Jerry Falwell from the presidency of Liberty University, but we can't say. That simply because there are individuals who fall into sin who identify as Christians and even as prominent Christian leaders, that all Christians are therefore hypocrites. The way to avoid that charge is for Christians to resolutely and uniformly declare that sexual immorality is sin wherever it is found. It should not be condoned and it should not be excused away. But I think perhaps more importantly, as we seek to respond to this situation, knowing that all of us have sin in our hearts that would make sexual immorality at one time or another a real and actual temptation. We must learn from those, both believers and unbelievers who go before us and who fall into temptation and who actively pursue after sin. We must learn not to walk that path, but instead to read and ourselves into the story of the Bible and to allow the stories in the Bible to shape the way that we live. So when it comes to the temptation to sexual immorality, we understand that the Bible is rife with stories about sexual immorality. The Bible doesn't hide that humans have proclivity to sexual immorality. But the Bible does give us categories for knowing what the end of sexual immorality is. And in fact, in the multiple stories in the Bible, whether it is of Joseph and Potiphar's wife or of the made-up account, the the almost parable-like story in Proverbs 7, or even in the apocryphal literature in the book of Susanna, we see in these ancient stories how God and how those operating from a biblical worldview interpret events that include sexual immorality. And in fact, they provide something of a script that we can live our lives by. And so, if we are in a situation where there is someone in an authoritative power structure who is seeking to engage with us in sexual immorality, there is a part that is written for us to play. And that is the part of Joseph, the part of fleeing. It is the part of Susanna who refuses to participate in sexual immorality, both who are faced by power structures where. Joseph and Susanna would be on the bad end of things, either killed or imprisoned or both. We learn to play out our part in the script. And for those who are tempted to be the aggressors in a situation leading to sexual immorality, the Bible has a script, a role for them as well. And so just to think of the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife, Potiphar's wife was written out of God's story. Those who pursue sexual immorality get written out of God's story. And so when we hear about stories like this or events like this in the church, in Christian colleges, and in the world, we have to figure out who is playing what part. And we have to follow the thread to see what the end of their part is. And as we read the scriptures, those who engage in sexual immorality, apart from repentance, always get written out of God's story. So there's encouragement for those who are tempted to sexual immorality to play a different part. There's encouragement for those who have fallen prey to sexual immorality to follow the plot line, to follow the storyline, to play the part of a David who repented of his sin. We must read the, the Bible as the script by which we live out the drama of our lives in this life. We can't allow ourselves to live our lives based on the script of the stories we see in Netflix shows, in, in books that are written without a biblical worldview, and in the lives of those who are around us. Because very often in each of those settings, the reality is hidden. The story isn't told long enough for each person's part to come to fruition. So as we look at the scandals with Jerry and Becky Falwell, we simply say, first, that we must be repentant of our own sin. Second, that we must not make excuses for those who do fall into sin, but instead we must call them to repentance. And then finally, as Christians, we must be soaking in the scriptures so that whatever situation we encounter, whatever temptation we face, we will know the script by which we ought to live out the drama of our lives so that we will know the part that we ought to play and so that we know which role to avoid. Well, I've enjoyed talking about these events and these articles, and I look forward to talking in the future as often as it would make sense and hopefully incorporating others into this public theology special edition of the Questions and Answers About the Bible and Theology podcast. Questions and Answers about the Bible and Theology is a podcast of Crystal Lake Baptist Church in Burnsville, Minnesota. To learn more, you can visit us at www.clbcmn.org. If there are questions you would like answered or perhaps events or articles that you would like us to discuss, you can send them our way at office at clbcmn.org.